and welcome to this episode of Drug Target Reviews podcast, sponsored by Molecular Devices. I'm your host, Izzy Wood, the editorial assistant at Drug Target Review. This episode is about the regulations on artificial intelligence and its impact on drug discovery. This is our penultimate episode with Molecular Devices, and if you missed the previous episode, you can check it out on the Drug Target Review website and find out more information in the description box. In this episode, we'll be discussing the hot topic that is AI and how AI technology is used in drug discovery. We will be looking specifically at how the biotechs and pharma industry is trying to keep up with the emerging technology. So before we begin today, let's hear from our sponsors, Molecular Devices. This podcast is brought to you by Molecular Devices. With its innovative life science technology, Molecular Devices make scientific breakthroughs possible for academic, pharmaceutical, government and biotech customers. Head to moleculardevices.com to find out more. So today I will be joined by Dr. Aaron Daughtery, who was most recently the Vice President at Aria Pharmaceutics, and Shiraz Gul, the Head of Drug Screening and Compound Repurposing at the Fraunhofer Institute for Translational Medicine and Pharmacology. It's great to have you both here today. I'm excited to begin our discussion on the very prevalent topic that is AI. But before we do so, I think it would be great to hear a bit about your background. So if we start with Aaron, please could you introduce yourself? Yeah, happy to and happy to be here. Aaron Doherty, as you said, most recently the Vice President of Discovery at Aria Pharmaceuticals, where we were using AI to predict efficacy for early stage drug discovery hits. During my time there, I originally was building out our AI technology and eventually leading the the team, both building out and using the AI platform we built there. Prior to my time at Aria, I got my PhD in genetics from Stanford and originally was a wet lab trained molecular biologist. So kind of bringing that perspective to building and using uh, AI tools uh, such as what we have at Aria. Great. Thank you, Aaron. And over to you, Siraz. Yep, thanks for the introduction. And my name is Shiraz Gul. I work for the Fraunhofer Institute in Germany, and this is Europe's largest applied research organization. And for the last two decades, I've been working on drug discovery in the preclinical landscape. So I've worked in Big Pharma, where we've been doing more in vitro experiments, and also at the Fraunhofer, but we're now trying to progress drug discovery projects using a data-driven approach. So there's a lot of information available in the public domain regarding compounds which might have failed in clinical trials or clinical candidates. Much of this has also been published by academic researchers. And what we're trying to do is to use as many computational tools as as possible to de-risk our projects and really bridge the gap between uh, in vitro experiments and in vivo experiments um, and ultimately clinical trials and get drugs to patients who are waiting for therapies. Great, thank you both. So we're here today to discuss AI in the pharmaceutical industry and the regulatory concerns around it. But I think to set the scene, maybe we can begin by outlining the different AI technologies used in drug discovery. Yeah, so I mean, I can speak to what we uh, we use at Aria, but also maybe I'll try to get an overview and maybe I'll start there. I think really in, in drug discovery as well as drug development, there are many stages at which you are working with a large degree of uncertainty in using complex data sources, either meaning uh, multimodal, different types of data, uh, or just really large amounts of data. And in any of those situations, artificial intelligence is going to uh, lend itself to be very helpful because it's really at the very highest level set of statistical and software, usually tools, uh, to be able to help deal with uncertainty. At least that's how I, I think about it. You'll, you'll run into many different definitions of, of artificial intelligence. I tend to think of it a little bit more as a, a use case definition, especially when thinking of it in the stages of, of drug discovery. 
So because of that, you can imagine really using it at many different points along the drug discovery process. I tend to split most of the, the drug discovery or AI use cases in drug discovery into three main bins. You have the AI for biology. So thinking more traditionally about something like target discovery or understanding disease pathology. That's where we operated at ARIA. I think the more well-established and larger field is AI for chemistry or AI for molecule design. Now with some of the more generative AI being used for molecule design, biologics and such. Uh, and then the more nascent, but arguably perhaps even more impactful AI for clinical, which I'm imagining we'll touch on today, just because that's where you start butting up against regulatory even more. Just briefly on the work we did uh, at ARIA, actually somewhat similar to the work that sounds like Charles was describing, uh, where really our focus was around multimodal data analysis to build disease-specific models, being able to pull in, you know, at the time over 70 different data sources and data types to be able to more holistically understand the disease. And from that, understand the disease pathology and directly go to predicting uh, novel targets as well as molecules that uh, were highly likely to be uh, disease-modifying both preclinically as well as clinically. Great, thank you. And Shiraz, do you want to... Yeah, so from my perspective, I've been largely working in the laboratory and using in vitro methods. And the techniques and the model systems that we have are often reductionist. They try and um, mimic what's happening in vivo in the human. However, the best model for any disease is the human itself. And what we're trying to do is develop compounds which are safe and efficacious. However, all of this work is done in a laboratory environment using the surrogate system, cell-based assays. And drug discovery is a very complicated multi-parameter optimization process. So we're often working in the dark, and then we're doing some small experiments with our best compounds using our, say, more uh, physiologically relevant model systems. But we know many drugs have polypharmacology, and this polypharmacology could result in, in fact, improved efficacy, but more likely could give rise to some adverse side effects, which will only be manifested in a clinical trial. And most compounds that we are working on, there is some information either for those compounds or analogs thereof in the public domain, and what we're trying to do use is our in silica methods, AI, machine learning, computational tools to try and extract that information from the public domain and then use that to improve the potency of our compounds and maybe the um, side effect profile as well. So it's still a learning process, but it's really just an add-on in trying to de-risk our projects and get compounds which might be more safe and efficacious in a human clinical trial. And it's really trying to compress the preclinical work as much as possible. Great, thank you. And so thinking about all these different AI technologies and their applications, how would you say that biotechs and pharma companies are trying to keep up with all this emerging technology? And is there any current regulation around it? Okay, I think from our perspective, uh, what we find is um, a lot of compound information is in the public domain. And what we're trying to do is really extract that information and a lot of effort has gone into collecting these data sets. And it's often available at free if it's, if it's deposited into a public database, for example, Kemble, Drug Bank, and other suitable um, databases. And there's a lot of know-how that's gone around those compound um, information. So what we're trying to do, and I think the biotechs are really leading the field in this and trying to, because they've got limited budgets and limited resource, in pulling that data out and then trying to curate this data in a, say, machine-readable format. Often this data is stored in 
um, non-standard formats. For example, there might be JPEGs or images of compounds and images of graphs and pictures, which might not be machine readable. So what we need to do is develop computational tools that can extract this information and then make it searchable and usable. And there's this new concept around FAIR to make data findable, accessible, interoperable, and reproducible as well. So there's a huge initiative within the EU and probably in the, on the global scale as well to make data fairable, which would mean many users can um, use this data in a meaningful manner. So a lot of tools are still being developed in-house within organizations, and there are lots of companies that actually develop bespoke solutions. But the aim really is to try and collate as much information as possible and then use whichever computational tool you have to um, make as much, um, extract that data and make, make it useful for your project of that you're working on. Yeah, and Charles is exactly correct. I think the aspect that he had focused on was what I would kind of term some of the data engineering aspect of things, where the biomedical space is uh, uniquely difficult to work in, largely because a lot of this data does start in academic realms, where the motivation or the, the priorities aren't for having well-organized data that's to get published. And you know there isn't an incentive to, to necessarily have data uh, consistently organized. If I also look at the technologies, because certainly the, the data engineering is foundational to everything you're going to do with, with AI, but there's also the different technologies and the other use cases. And, and to speak to that aspect, I think on the, the big pharma side of things, there, you know, we'll say maybe a decade ago was just starting to be a nascent recognition that, hey, maybe some of this, this software could be helpful outside of just the computational chemistry realm. And really, the hype and the, the uptake has just ramped up exponentially in the corresponding eight to, to 10 years, to the point now that I think almost every big pharma, probably every big pharma, has an internal team that they're trying to build out their own, whether it's knowledge graphs or proprietary data sources that they're organizing, as well as their own computational teams. I think there's a large gradient on how they're doing that and how well they're doing that. But they're also really engaging with the biotech realm, which, as Raz said, is really who I think is pushing the envelope, doing more, as you would expect. The, the smaller companies are going to be taking more risks, kind of pushing the envelope on the technology side of things. And so, of course, Big Pharma is playing the role that they kind of do traditionally in other technologies or, or other aspects of di drug discovery, where they're going to be engaging with these small companies, doing pilot studies, signing larger scale deals once they've been proved out. And so you see these big pharma companies kind of taking a, a two-pronged approach where they're doing their own internal development, uh, but also doing a, a large number of partnering deals where they're essentially offloading some of that risk to allow the, the biotechs to kind of push the envelope on the technology. And of course, probably with the eye towards if it works to, to bring it in-house eventually. And of course, I will say the biotech AI space is blowing up so much. You know, there's hundreds of, of companies doing AI and drug discovery which means a lot and a little because, you know, essentially it's like saying you're a scientist in drug discovery. It's not terribly specific, but there's, there's hundreds of companies in this space. And so really supporting some of these, these deals and, and partnerships. Though I will say we're starting to see some of that biotech space start to contract just with the current funding situation primarily. Great, thank you. And obviously with all these companies developing, trying to keep up with these technologies, there's a regulatory aspect to it. So I think my question for you guys is, how would you interpret the regulatory side of things? And do you think that the regulation around AI and drug discovery is already available? In general, the AI for drug discovery space is a bit nascent. And as usual, regulatory is going to lag a little bit further behind. And so AI and drug discovery, at least in the US, I, I 
will say I can't speak too confidently to the, the EU by any means. But in the U.S., it, it is very nascent. I think, you know, just looking to the FDA, they, they put out a discussion paper, a couple discussion papers just earlier this year. So not regulation so much as just beginning the, the conversation with the field. Now, obviously, they're, they're more advanced with AI and ML in the medical device space. And so I think they're trying to leverage some of those learnings. But the FDA, understandably, is really playing catch up, as most regulators will be doing. The problem, of course, we're seeing with AI and ML, not just in the biomedical space, it's just that it moves so quickly uh, that normal lags of you know a year, or two years, even three years, means a lot more when the field's advancing as quickly as it is. And from our side, what we're doing with most of our projects is to um, have these data management plans in place at the start of a project. So there's a lot of confusion around nomenclature, what are the parameters that define particular properties of a compound or an assay system. So for example, one of the parameters that we often work with is potency. That could be IC50, EC50, KD, percentage effect, and so on. And this means different things to different people, so we need to make sure that the underlying quality control and the standard operating procedures are adequately translatable, um, they're reproducible. This is not an academic exercise. We just want to simply publish a paper. We need to make sure the underlying data is reliable, reproducible, and to make sure everyone in our project is on board. We have comprehensive data management plans, which is partly a non-regulated but at least everyone understands the terms and conditions of the data that we generate, what it, what is the minimum criteria for success. Often when this data is deposited into public databases, if there's no QC, then people who are extracting that data could in fact uh, make incorrect assumptions and incorrect conclusions as well. So I think this is still work in progress within the EU, but I know with EU projects, there is a stipulation that all projects that are, get funding should have data management plans, which were agreed by all the partners. So I think it's still in its early stages. We have been using computational tools 20 years ago, but often they were used at the time internally where everyone was on board and they would understand what the parameters would mean. And it was really trying to rationalize the, the in vitro observations and using, say, molecular docking and modeling to explain our in vitro findings. Now we're trying to do it the other way around. Can we use these methods to, in fact, predict what our in vitro results would be? And the whole purpose of this is to try and um, overcome or reduce the amount of in vitro work, but this is expensive and time-consuming. Uh, so I think it's still all in flux. Um, there have been some major milestones in terms of data management plans and getting some agreement on what the data minimum requirements are, but I think this is still work in progress and there's a long way to go to really have everyone agreed upon on, on criteria. Definitely, and I think, obviously, regulation around AI is such a hit or miss topic people have so many different opinions there's obviously as you've said been legislation from fda ema and eu about if this technology will help or hinder the um, drug discovery field so i guess in a more broad term with what you guys think about if the regulation around ai would hinder the drug discovery process in terms of things like how long the tools take to get approved things like that and maybe where the line is drawn around it replacing people and their jobs what sort of things do you think about? So, so I think that's a good point. I think from my perspective, that if you look at the clinical area, there has been a desire to collect pathology samples and do um, imaging and use computational methods as a replacement for pathologists, in fact, giving diagnosis for diseases. So I think that's still in its infancy. There might have been some uh, milestones in terms of regulatory approval. So I think we know where we want to be. 
but it's still very risky. And I think the clinical area is a different really ball game altogether. We're largely working in the preclinical space where we're actually developing these tools, where we get collecting images on a mass scale. This could be from hospitals, patients who are undergoing therapy, and then we are, we are developing these tools and then validating them. But again, the regulatory framework around, say, diagnostics and approval and validation is very time-consuming. It's probably similar to getting a drug approved, uh, where you've got to, say, undertake tens of thousands of patients that have been progressed, va- evaluated in these in these, in these technologies. So it's still, still in its early stages in the preclinical domain, we've got to be pragmatic and realistic in what we can do as a team within the budgets that are available and the resources that are available. So I think um, most researchers in the, in the non-clinical field, where they're not dealing with patients, would say um, life-changing decisions that need to be made. There's a lot of flexibility and opportunities to really, um, I don't see it as being a hindrance, but we've got to bear in mind eventually these assets will go into the clinic where they might be more um, regulated. Um, so that that's still in, in flux at the moment from my perspective. Yeah, I, I would disagree, or agree excuse me, with, with everything Shiraz uh, was saying there. And again, I experience is also in the preclinical stage. I guess the nice thing about doing work and using AI tools in the, the preclinical stage is that at the end of the day, the commodity that you're going to push forward is going to be a small molecule, a large molecule, and the FDA and, and the regulators know how to evaluate that. How you get to that point can be informed and made much easier and much faster and much better with AI, but at the end of the day, it's still going to be a small molecule, it's still going to be a, a large molecule, and, and the evaluation processes, the normal scientific experiments that need to be run are, are still going to be the same. And so speaking to the, you know, as far as the AI is coming for a scientist job, I really don't think that's the case. For me, I, I see it as, in the way that we've often described our technology, is, is an AI is a supercharging tool for a, a good scientist. And realistically, we're building AI right now to automate some steps that we're already doing. But I don't think anyone's goal is just to automate what we're already doing. We, that's the first step. Then you want to go beyond and do it at an order of magnitude, faster or, or larger scale and more complex. And that's still going to need scientists in the loop. AI is, is quite a long ways away from being able to go and do any of these things by themselves. It's, it's very much humans in the loop, specifically research scientists in the loop. And so, you know, I know for myself, if I instead of putting on my technologist hat, put on my molecular biologist hat, I'm able to do so much more using some of these technologies and better understand these disease biologies, both at scale, so meaning multiple diseases, but also in depth, really getting down into the molecular nitty gritty of some of these these diseases so rapidly that I just never could do. You know, I'd still be reading the first review paper, but by using AI technology, you know, I'm, I'm three or four orders of magnitude deeper in, in understanding the key to this disease pathology. And, and that's the promise to me of what AI can allow in that one use case. Just as an example. Just to add to that, there's an ex- been an explosion in the amount of um, research publications. And to read papers and really digest and extract information is, is too time-consuming. We're developing tools where we can interrogate this publicly available information, extract useful information, the key parameters, also explore and search databases, patents, as many databases as possible, extract all the data harmonize it, and then make it suitable for our purpose. And to do this manually, this is too time-consuming. This would have been done in the past, but again, the future is really using these computational methods to do, for it to be a means to an end, to extract the information, um, assimilate, and then give us some opportunities to do some data-driven um, drug I think discovery. You're exactly correct. And it's not just papers, it's also the type of data that's coming out. Starting with the sequencing of the genome, we're seeing these really unbiased, massive data sets come out 
And essentially, the human mind has no chance to be able to interpret just one of those, let alone if you're trying to do something where you're you're looking at multiple data modalities and how those interact. Like that's that's just going well beyond the two or three D kind of space that the human brain can can easily think about. And frankly, if, if you want to get into that space, you have to be using computation of, of some sort. And AI is just the, the latest and most advanced version. Yeah, I think you guys have really touched on some of the positive aspects of AI and how it really streamlines the process of drug discovery and everything else within um, the pharmaceutical industry. In terms of the flip side of that, and perhaps the misapplication of AI and some of the consequences that can come with this, what do you think are some of the perhaps unintended misapplications of AI? And maybe we could discuss that a bit more. Sure, I can, I can take this one first. I think the biggest one that always comes, well, the two that come to mind for me are data privacy and also uh, bias just being baked into the models. I just personally am a little bit less concerned about data privacy. I, I guess I care uh, or more concerned about bias because it's, it's more hidden. I think, you know, essentially you can have things where you're unintentionally propagating the bias that has, as we're well aware at this point, uh, been part of drug discovery, drug development, even basic science with so much emphasis on the, the genomics of, of white Europeans versus the, the global population. I don't think most folks had any ill intent with that process, but now it is so baked in. If you just go looking for the most amount of data you can get, without caring about background diversity or, or any of these kind of uh, biases, you're going to inadvertently continue to propagate that, right? And so one really kind of simple example is if you're training a model, like we were in trying to predict uh, drug efficacy, and so for your, your training examples, those positive examples, things you're trying to find more of, you use drugs that have been already FDA approved. Well, those drugs are, are have largely been developed for, again, white European ancestries, and so you're going to find more drugs that may act like that. That's one kind of cartoon or a toy example of how you could kind of implicitly pass along that bias with, with no ill intent, just going out trying to find as much data as you can. So that's one area where I don't think it's a misapplication of AI. It's just if you're not careful, you can, you can have unintended consequences. And there's many others, but that's the one that I think I kind of think about just because it, it can be a little bit more hidden if you're not quite as familiar with the space. And from my perspective, some of the projects we're working on are genomics-based and patient consent or consent from the donor and the use of the data is still limited. So for one of our projects, we're doing full epigenetic profiling and collecting hundreds of thousand data points. Some of that data we understand, but a lot of it we do not understand. And it could be that during our analysis, we find, for example, certain risk factors that this individual might have an elevated risk based on our algorithm of a certain disease. And the question is, how reliable is that prediction? Should we be disclosing that to the um, person? So the consent forms are somewhat vague, and we try to keep really at arm's length from the patient. So we don't we try to we try to collect information in an anonymous, anonymous basis. So there's some intermediary in, in the middle. And this is still really work in progress because even our diagnostic tools, which might give a prediction of elevated risk of a certain disease, it hasn't been validated in the clinic yet. And at what point do you really convey this to the patient? So this is still really work in progress. And I don't think anyone has a solution to this yet because we're collecting lots of data. And it could be that in the future, we in fact find out um, when well, we should have informed someone about a certain risk factor. They could have taken some preemptive measure, but now it's too late, for example. So this is still interesting and um, research only at the moment. So I think 
you've both touched a lot on the importance of data and the um, vast amount of data AI gives you access to. So could you go into a bit more detail about the importance of quantitative versus qualitative data? I think from my perspective, we see a mix of both qualitative and quantitative data. Often what's in the literature, in, in publications, there's a figure with a picture and some description of what's, what the observation is, which is all qualitative. And there's some bias that can be introduced in these publications because they're trying to really describe a particular effect and say it's large. And then there's an underlying quantitative analysis of this, which has to be really on multiple replicates across different days, across different batches of reagents. So often we do find a disconnect between quantitative and qualitative observations. Qualitative is often just a high expression or low expression or a very potent, but we need that quantitative readout because that's really the absolute value that will determine how good that compound effect is in, in, in our assay system. So we need the quantitative analysis as well as the qualitative finding. Both are necessary. And sometimes we want to access the raw data, which is now being promoted by various publishers, that the raw data should be provided to other researchers so they actually can reanalyze the data and come up with their own quantitative um, finding as well. So I think having access to the raw data, not just the process data, is, is essential to be able to um, understand how that data was processed. And I think there is a drive generally in uh, making sure researchers are depositing and supplementary information, both data sets, to um, allow more rigorous analysis of what's going on. Yeah, I'll add one or two things, but I think largely just going to echo what Shiraz was saying. I think, and maybe just the one layer deeper here on, on why quantitative data is so important. At the end of the day, all these AI models are just statistics, and so they need numbers to run on just to keep this very simple. Uh, and qualitative data obviously has been interpreted. And so I think that's what, another reason, that latter point is another reason why at ARIA, we always focused on trying to get that raw data and putting it through our own analysis pipelines versus doing something like natural language processing on written papers and then building a knowledge graph. Anything that's in that paper has been interpreted and and spun otherwise, intentionally or otherwise, to be able to publish a paper, right? We all know when you generate a large data set, you can't write it all up in a paper. You need to have some sort of story. And so just by doing that, you've already put your bias or some bias into the, to the data. And so I think that's where quantitative data essentially is, is trying to pull out some of that bias. I will say, as kind of more of a practitioner on the AI side of things, while it's always better to have quantitative data, it's not always possible. And so there is some art to being able to how to take advantage of the qualitative data that, that's there. Uh, and so that's something where you also need to be mindful that, hey, this isn't kind of that raw uh, ground truth uh, data. There's there's something that's been put in here. But when data is limited or if you're trying to just get as much as you can, there's there's something to be said for figuring, essentially figuring out how to use what you have at hand. And sometimes that is qualitative data. Great. Thank you. And I think... A final point to sort of end today on. So we've obviously talked a lot about the concerns around the uncertainty of AI applications in today's episode. So I think a good note to maybe leave today is if I asked you, obviously, with all the concern around the application of AI technology, are you positive or negative about using it for your future innovations? Extremely positive. Any new technology is going to come with risks. Anytime you're moving the field forward, it can be misused in, in any direction. It's always going to have drawbacks and things to keep in mind. 
but at the end of the day, this really does, you know, I think I described it earlier, is an ability to supercharge scientists uh, with thinking, especially on the preclinical side of things. And so anytime we're doing that, we're going to, in theory, be able to, to move forward drug discovery and development, and that's going to be good for society. We have to keep all of these guardrails in mind. That's what the regulations are, are there for, is to help keep things kind of in line when there isn't necessarily an incentive to do so, uh, but when we as a society have decided that's the right thing to do. And so I, I think regulations can be very helpful when, when correctly applied, and AI will absolutely be helpful. How helpful it is is totally how we implement it and how we regulate it, but there's no doubt it's going to have a positive impact in my mind. Yeah. And from our perspective, we're really seeing the positive effects of AI and computational methods. Drug discovery is very complicated. A huge team of researchers is involved in getting a project moving forward. And using these methods, it will not be a magic bullet where this will replace entirely every other phase or research group within the drug discovery workflow. But it's an add-on which has already showed its benefits. As I've already mentioned, searching the literature for information and extracting would take weeks. We can do that using algorithms using computational methods in a matter of minutes. So it's definitely shown its value already, how these compounds are working, identify potential side effects at an early stage, and then really use that information to optimize those compounds before they go into more advanced models. That's, that's clearly shown its benefits already. So we're very positive. So I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. I want to give a big thank you to Aaron and Shiraz for joining me on today's podcast and making such excellent points. It's been fantastic speaking with both of you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to the Drug Target Review podcast sponsored by Molecular Devices. I've been Izzy Wood, the editorial assistant at Drug Target Review. Make sure to keep an eye out for the final episode of the collection of podcasts with Molecular Devices. 